Hello, just a quick preliminary to our show. Bonin Sickle is taking August off in order to perform some much-needed maintenance. And to fill the gap, we'll be offering listeners a sampling of the short bonus episodes enjoyed by our patrons subscribing at the $4 monthly rate. We uh, hope you enjoy this peek into an alternate Bowden Sickle universe, and that if you do, you might consider joining us on Patreon to hear more of these. You can access the entire archive of episodes, about six hours of material, immediately upon signing up. We'll be back in September with regular episodes. Welcome to our 15th episode of Marvelous and Rare, Antiquarian Circle. We offer this show exclusively to Patreon subscribers as a thank you for the support that makes Bone and Sickle possible. These short episodes consist exclusively of readings from rare books from the shelves of our library here. With all that's been going on on the international stage lately, I was looking for material on the sort of celestial wonders which in days gone by were understood as portending major historical events. And that's not exactly what I ended up putting together, but it did lead me back to a favorite volume by William R. Corliss entitled Handbook of Unusual Natural Phenomena. The publication date is 1977, which falls outside our usual window, but I should explain that Corliss is actually a compiler of earlier accounts from the late 19th and early 20th century. He put out a number of books collecting the sort of reports uh, Charles Fort is known for, but uh, without all of uh, Fort's uh, absurdist commentary. I hope you enjoy the selections I've chosen, and though they may not portend the future, I hope they do serve to lift your mind from the grim realities of the day-to-day. First selection. Sparkling Rain, and this is from Simon's Monthly Meteorological Magazine, an 1892 edition. Rain, which on touching the ground crackles and emits electrical sparks, is a very uncommon but not unknown phenomenon. An instance of this kind was recently reported from Cordova in Spain by an electrical engineer who witnessed the occurrence. The weather had been warm and undisturbed by wind and soon after dark, the sky became overcast by clouds. At about 8 p.m., there came a flash of lightning, followed by great drops of electric rain, each one of which, on touching the ground, walls or trees, gave a faint crack and emitted a spark of light. The phenomenon continued for several seconds and apparently ceased as soon as the atmosphere was saturated with moisture. It's even stranger still, our next St. Elmo's Fire in Egypt. This is from the Meteorological Magazine of 1938. 
In view of Mr. Sutton's note in the March issue of the Meteorological Magazine, the following extract from A Search in Secret Egypt by Paul Brunton may be of interest. A footnote to page 77 reads, Dr. Abate Pasha, vice president of the Egyptian Institute, spent a night in the desert near the pyramids together with Mr. William Groff, a member of the Institute. In the official report of their experiences, the latter said, Towards eight o'clock in the evening, I noticed a light which appeared to turn slowly around the third pyramid, almost up to the apex. The light made three circuits around the pyramid and then disappeared. For a good part of the night, I attentively watched the pyramid. Toward 11 o'clock, I again noticed the same light, but this time it was of a bluish color. It mounted slowly, almost in a straight line, and arrived at a certain height above the pyramid's summit and then disappeared. The account goes on to say that Mr. Groff found that this phenomenon was well known to the Arabs who put it down to spirits. Unfortunately, the weather conditions do not appear in the excerpt cited. Oh, that's okay. Uh, and our next one. Note on an appearance of luminous bubbles in the atmosphere. This from an 1887 edition of the Royal Meteorological Society Quarterly. On a day in the month of January 1871, a lady residing at Park Place, Remenham, observed the following phenomenon shortly before noon. The weather was intensely cold. Snow was lying on the ground after a fall some days previously. The sky was dull gray with rust-colored clouds hanging rather low. The sun just showing itself and the air was perfectly still. The wallpaper and furniture of the room in which the lady was sitting were suddenly flushed with rose color, which gradually deepened into crimson, passing through bright gold into orange, lilac, and deep violet. It was then seen that from the center of the level space of snow within view, a group of air bubbles of the shape and apparent size of India rubber balls sold in the streets rose to a considerable height and then began to move up and down within a limited area and at an equal distance from each other, some ascending, others descending. The appearance lasted about two minutes, at the expiration of which the balls were carried away by a current of wind to the eastward and disappeared. Another group of balls arose subsequently from the same spot and the phenomena were precisely reproduced. It was remarked that the balls assumed in succession the tints which had been observed on the walls of the room. The appearance was also witnessed by a maidservant who, on entering the room, at once exclaimed, Oh, look at those little balls going up and down. The Above particulars were noted down immediately after a conversation with the lady who saw the bubbles, but she had frequently referred to the matter previously. 
Though rather advanced in years, she is in full possession of her faculties and is rather unusually keen and observant. Okay, next one. Myriad of luminous bodies cross sky. And this from an 1880 edition of Nature. A remarkable phenomenon was observed at Kattenau near Trachenen, Germany, and in the surrounding district on March 22nd. About a half an hour before sunrise, an enormous number of luminous bodies rose from the horizon and passed in a horizontal direction from east to west. Some of them seemed the size of a walnut, others resembled sparks flying from a chimney. They moved through space like a string of beads and shone with a remarkably brilliant light. The belt containing them appeared about three meters in length and two-thirds of a meter in breadth. Next is uh, Fiery Whirlwind, and uh, this is from an 1881 edition of Monthly Weather Review. Near Americus, Georgia, on the 18th, at some distance from the town, a small whirlwind, about 5 feet in diameter and sometimes 100 feet high, formed over a cornfield where it tore up the stalks by the roots and carried them with sand and other loose material high into the air. The body of the whirling mass was of vaporous formation and perfectly black, the center apparently illuminated by fire and emitting strange sulfurous vapor that could be distinguished at a distance of about 300 yards, burning and sickening all who approached close enough to breathe it. Occasionally, the cloud would divide into three minor ones, and as they came together again, there would be a loud crash accompanied by crackling sounds when the whole mass would shoot upwards into the heavens. And the next one is uh, short, but I think rather terrifying. The Pogo Nip. This from an 1887 edition of American Meteorological Journal. A curious phenomenon is often witnessed in the mountainous districts of Nevada. Mountaineers call it Pogonip and describe it as being a sort of frozen fog that appears sometimes in winter, even on the clearest and brightest of days. In an instant, the air is filled with floating needles of ice. To breathe the pogonip is death to the lungs. When it comes, people rush to cover. The Indians dread it as much as the whites. It appears to be caused by the sudden freezing in the air of the moisture which collects about the summits of the high peaks. I guess uh, no mountaineering in Nevada for me. And I've saved the best for last, I think. Cat-like ball lightning from 
1852 edition of the Proceedings of the Academy of Sciences, that is, from France. The following report to the Academy concerns a case of ball lightning which the Academy has entrusted to me to investigate several years ago. Not on the downward stroke, but rather during its return stroke, so to speak, the lightning in question struck a house in the Rue Saint-Jacques next to the Val de Grasse church. In fact, this took place in a proximity which would have led one to think that the house would have been protected against this sort of mishap by the high lightning rod mounted on the dome of the Val de Grasse church. The following is a condensed version of the account given by the tailor in whose room the ball lightning descended and then lifted upward again. Somewhat after a very powerful lightning stroke, the tailor, who was sitting next to his table after having finished his meal, suddenly saw how the paper-lined frame covering the fireplace opening fell down as if it had been knocked over by a strong gust of wind, and a fireball the size of a child's head gently entered via the opening and slowly wandered about the room at low level over the floor tiles. According to the tailor, the fiery ball appeared like an average-sized young cat which had rolled itself into a ball and moved without using its paws for support. The fireball was shiny and luminous rather than hot and, and inflamed, and the tailor experienced no heat sensation. The ball approached his feet like a young cat which wanted to play, and, as is customary for such animals, to rub itself along the leg of its master. The tailor nevertheless withdrew his feet, and by means of several careful, or in his own words, very gently performed movements, he avoided making contact with the phenomenon. The latter seemed to pause several seconds beside the feet of the seated tailor, who, bending somewhat forward, watched it attentively. After the ball had carried out a few movements in different directions, but without veering from the center of the room, it lifted straight upward to the level of the tailor's head, who sat upright again, and sank back into his chair in order to avoid being hit in the face and at the same time to be able to follow the course of the phenomenon. When the fireball had reached the height of about one meter above the floor, it became somewhat elongated and made its way along a slanted path to a hole about one meter above the upper cornice of the fireplace. This hole served to accommodate the pipe of a stove which the tailor used in winter. However, the lightning could not, in the tailor's words, see the hole since the latter was covered with paper. Nevertheless, the fireball went straight toward this hole, peeled off the paper without tearing it, and ascended the chimney. Thus, after it had taken the time, the mode of expression used by several eyewitnesses, to climb up the chimney at the same speed, i.e. fairly slowly, as when it had come, and had reached the mouth of the chimney, which was at least 20 meters above the ground, it produced a dreadful explosion, which destroyed part of the chimney and hurled the broken pieces into the yard. The roofings of several smaller buildings caved in, but fortunately without any disastrous consequences. The tailor's dwelling was situated on the third floor, i.e. not at mid-height of the house, and the lightning did not reach the ground floor. 
the motion of the luminous ball was at all times slow and steady. Its luster was by no means brilliant. Furthermore, it did not radiate any noticeable heat. The ball did not have any tendencies to follow conductive bodies or to veer away from air currents. And with that, we'll switch from books to music to close out our show. Uh, our selection from the library this time is a 1939 song sung by Canadian-born British comedian and singer Beatrice or B. Lily. Known particularly for her double entendre, she often performed in reviews staged by Noel Coward and Cole Porter and shared uh, with Coward especially that same dry humor, but could at times also launch into uh, realms of the absurd. Uh, this song is a bit of that and seemed appropriate as we enter March. It's called, I Hate Spring. Some people like the winter. Some people like the fall. Some people think that summer is best of all. Now I hate the spring. I hate open buses. I hate fresh asparaguses. But more than anything, I hate the spring. I hate birds. I also hate flowers. I hate sunshiny hours. But more than mere words, I hate birds. I hate spring the intruder. I hate round trips to Bermuda. I love dogs with rabies. But I hate babies. I hate the spring. I hate anything funny. I love money. But more than anything, I hate the spring. Spring. <laughs> spring. The buds are bursting on the bough. Little green shoots in cups and spinny. The satin hen. The carving cow. Meet you at the ballpark, skinny. Spring. Mother saw her first robin today. It was a ghastly sight. Cherry blossom time in Washington. Lilac time in old Virginia. <laughs> Spring time in the Rockies. Well, it can stay there. You go out and bed down your old petunias. You dash up to the attic and get out your old double dimity. You spring out of bed at six o'clock in the morning and spring into a cold shower and spring downstairs and spring into that damp spring air. You don't catch me going on a picnic. Oh, no. Spring. I hate the spring. I hate golf and tennis. I also hate Venice. But more than anything, I hate the spring. I hate peas. I also hate gladiolas. I love scratchy victrolas. But more than all of these, I hate peas. I hate dogs. I hate rabbits. I love people who have habits. I hate fancy cheeses. But I love diseases. I hate the spring. I hate anything pictorial. I love the Albert Memorial. But more than anything, I hate the spring. 